0: All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to The Story. I'm so glad you're here. Um, Truly, truly glad you made time to be here this morning, uh, especially if it's like your first time here or if you're kind of new. A special welcome to you. I'm Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. This is our fourth Sunday in this this building, in this property. It is uh, also the first Sunday of Advent which means Christmas is right around the corner. We're in the month of December already. Where did 2023 go? My goodness. Um, I hope y'all are excited about Christmas. Um, I just wanted to get y'all up to speed about what our plans are for Christmas. It's kind of weird that it's on a Sunday. Christmas Eve is on a Sunday this year. That only happens once every seven years or so. And um, that's this year. So it's gonna affect the schedule a little bit. I just wanna give y'all a heads up, a little different than usual. We've got eight services for Christmas Eve candlelight Um, Six of them are on this campus, so um, starting with the Traveler's Christmas Eve service, which is an annual tradition here at the Story so if you are planning to go out of town for you know real Christmas with family or whatever, and you want to experience Christmas Eve candlelight with your story family, we always do the Travelers Christmas Eve service. It's the exact same service that you get on Christmas Eve. In fact, we have people who plan to be here Christmas Eve who still go to the cr- Travelers because they're the people you know those people. They're the ones that start playing Christmas songs in August <laughs> or whatever. Like they can't get enough. So um, it's a, it's always a fun um, event, the Travelers. And we've got on Christmas Eve on um, the 24th. 11 a.m., so no no 8.30 or 9.45 that day. Everybody can sleep in. 11 a.m. and then 1, 3, and 5 p.m. here. And, of course, over at our Timber Grove campus, we've got a, a 10 a.m. and a 4 p.m. service for Christmas Eve. Going to be an awesome celebration. I hope you can make plans now to be a part of at least one of those um, services. So... Um, a lot going on today. I want to welcome all of you here, all of you joining us online, as well as part of our online campus. And of course, our Timber Grove campus, is uh, they, they're enjoying some live preaching from Pastor Kale today, so I don't have to um, welcome them like I normally do. All right, <clears throat> so uh, let's get into today's message, shall we? It's uh, part 12 uh, in a 26-part series called Acts of the Apostles. You have study guides. You can grab those. We have um, some light. For this side of the room, you can see your study guides. This side, you're in the dark. which is, It's a sermon metaphor. It's an illustration, okay? There's the darkness and there's light. Um, no, we're going to we're have light like that throughout the room soon, so you'll be patient. Uh, in the meantime, just enjoy a little peace and quiet and in the dark. If you fall asleep, I won't see you, okay? So... <laughs> Um so this is part 12 in this series. I love the title of this series, the Acts of the Apostles, How a Handful of Nobodies Became a Movement for Everybody, because there's something about that word everybody that I really love. You know, it's a big, nice word. And I think we all want to believe everybody belongs with God. Everybody belongs at church. And you there's no shortage of churches now that sort of lead with their hearts, and they tell the whole world, everybody belongs here, everyone belongs here, no matter what, you belong here. And and sometimes that message is is a little bit um, tricky, I think, to convey because, because that's not exactly what the Bible says about God and belonging and everybody. I mean, that's what I want to believe, and I think in a sense it's true, but I think we have to be real careful because Look, even like the New Testament, which most people agree is, is sort of the softer, kinder Testament of the two, although I could pick a bone with that, but, but that's not the point. We, we all sort of look to the New Testament to be the, the grace part of the Bible, right? Even in the New Testament, you've got Jesus saying, on Judgment Day, there's going to be two groups, right? The sheep and the goats, right? Actually, it says three. There's wolves, too, but that's for another sermon, but the sheep and the goats, And the sheep are those who know him sincerely, and the goats are those who don't. Even if they say they do, there will be some who don't know him, and therefore they don't belong with him. So there's an edge to the Bible that sometimes in our sentimentality makes us uncomfortable. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul says something kind of similar. He's like, look... There's people who've been redeemed and saved and belong with Jesus, and there's those whom God has given over to their passions, to their desires. God lets people do what they want. And so, in a sense, I'm concerned that saying everyone belongs with God is is an affront to God's commitment to to free will. Because, yes, in a sense, I want to say everyone belongs with God in a sense, but but if you don't want to belong with God, he'll let you not. All right, so I I just want us to acknowledge that, even though that's in the subtitle, that there's a caveat to it, right? There's a caveat to the everybody word. In fact, I think if I pressed you long enough, I could find where your caveat is personally. I could find where the line is, because we all have the line. For all of us, there's somebody, whether it's someone you know personally or someone you see on the news or on the internet, there's somebody who, if they walked in the room right now, you would think or maybe even say, what are they doing here? what is he doing here? Does she really belong here? Like, think about, I don't know who that is for you. I don't want to make it too personal. I don't want you to say it out loud either, because they might be here, all right? (laughs) Well, you never know. Maybe it's a business partner who really betrayed you and did you dirty, and you haven't forgotten it. You can't forget it. They walked in, maybe you'd think about walking out. Or maybe it's an ex, you know, ex-spouse, ex-wife, ex-husband who really um, did you wrong, left you, abandoned you, maybe abandoned the kids too, and, and you just haven't forgotten or forgiven. Maybe it's your father or your mother who just wasn't there for you like they should have been. Maybe it's your mother-in-law It just knows how to push every button, especially at the holidays. And when we say Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, all you can think of is mother-in-law and how you have to spend time with her later this month. I don't know. I don't know what your situation is. I don't know who your person is. I know I have my people that I would think maybe, maybe, maybe not. Think about your least favorite politician. I know. Somebody just went, ooh. <laughs> all right. What if, what if he or she walked in right now? Would they fully belong in your view? Or, um, I don't know, um, think about some of the villains we see on TV lately. Some of the, you know, what if a Hamas member showed up, you know, for church? Would that set anybody's alarm bells off, probably? What if a drag queen came in full regalia to church and sat down next to you? How would you feel about that? What if an escaped convict showed up and still wearing his orange prison jumper and showed up at church would you wonder for a moment if he belongs what if adolis garcia of the texas rangers showed up <laughs> his roided up steroid <laughs> arms and his world series ring how many of you would pause for even just for a moment and ask does he belong is that for all of us, there's somebody who might not belong in the everybody. There might even be a bunch of somebodies who don't belong with God as far as we're concerned. And I think the challenge for every Christian community is to try as much as we can to get our criteria to align with God's criteria so that it's not just our feelings and opinions clouding our judgment. Now, that takes some discernment. It takes study. It takes humility to get our Priorities to align with God's, but sometimes we try. And, and, and I think good faith attempts to try and discern who really belongs in the church and who doesn't. We often come up with certain kinds of metrics or lines in the sand, like the bigger one I hear a lot is just unrepentant sin. If someone has unrepentant sin in their life, they're not ready to belong yet. That's just sort of a oft-repeated phrase I hear among Christians, and that makes sense in a in a way that is helpful, I guess, but the longer I sit with that and think about that, the less comfortable I am with it. Why? Because I don't think I'm quite done sinning yet. And I sin quite often. I don't know about you. I still sin pretty often. I'd like to say I'm repentant about all my sins. But if I told you that, that would be another sin because I'd be lying. I'd like to say, you know, I just sin every once in a while. The truth is I sin every single day. And while 98%, 99% of my sins I am am sorry about, I repent of, there's a few I'm still holding on to. I'm not proud of it, but I know the next time I'm driving around Houston and I'm surrounded by a bunch of my fellow citizens who don't know how to drive, (laughs) that anger is coming back. And I will feel, in the moment at least, quite justified about my anger because I know how to drive. And it's their fault that I'm angry. That's not how the Bible looks at my sin. That's not how Jesus looks at my sin. Jesus said anger is as bad as murder. Oof. Until I'm to the point where I'm fully repentant of my anger, I'm afraid of this notion that unrepentant sin is the deal breaker for God. You know, um, gosh, uh, I'm afraid to say there's more, but there's more for me. I mean, I know next time I go to the movies, I'm going to wear the deepest pockets I have in my closet, and I'm going to stuff them with cheap candy <laughs> from my house or Walgreens. And I'm going to effectively steal from the movie theater, breaking their rules, because I refuse to pay $8.50 for a box of hot tamales. Anyone? Amen? Amen. Amen. <laughs> we feel justified in our sins. That's stealing. And I go to the movies probably more than the average guy. And so I, I hate to think about what my tab is going to be at the end of this ride. And I'm not to the point in my heart where I can say I am fully repentant of that sort of thing. I don't mean to make light of this. I'm just saying, man, we, we, we all have to live on edge if the only thing that determines those who belong and those who don't is unrepentant sin. It's tricky. So this question of who belongs and who doesn't, man, it goes way back. It goes way back to the beginnings of the church. Christians have always asked this question. And what I want you to see is that thus far in the book of Acts, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 8, where we are today, um, that question was answered with, well, it's, it's Jewish people who have decided that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So all the first Christians were Jewish people first, and Christianity was, in its earliest inception, a sect within Judaism. Today, for the first time in history, we see where that changed. And it was a watershed moment, maybe top five most important moments in the Bible happened here, I would say, from Acts 8 through Acts 10 and 11 where we see God fulfilling his promise that he gave to the church in Acts 1, that it would start in Jerusalem and then spread to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. So this was God's plan, not just to reach Jewish people, but the whole world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's see what happens here. Acts chapter 8, verse 26 is where we'll begin. All right, you want to take a Bible and follow along with me? Unless you're in the darkness, you can follow along on the screens, okay? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, thanks for your patience. Hey, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. <clears throat> now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, that's Philip the deacon, who Dylan talked about last Sunday, if you were here. Um, so, Philip was brought into the church and into leadership in the church in Acts chapter 6. The angel said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. There's a word we've been hearing a lot, right? The Bible is real life. It's history. It's not fantasy. It's not myth. These are real places. Go from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. Those two words tell us a lot about this person. An Ethiopian eunuch. He was an important official in charge of all the treasury of the kandake, which means "'Queen of the Ethiopians.'" He's the treasurer for the Ethiopian queen. "'This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, "'and on his way home was sitting in his chariot "'reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. "'The spirit told Philip, "'Go to that chariot and stay near it. "'And Philip ran up to the chariot "'and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet.'" "'Do you understand what you're reading?' Philip asked. "'How can I?' he said, "'unless someone explains it to me.'" So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him, like in the chariot. And this is the passage of Scripture which the eunuch was reading. "'He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, "'as a lamb before its shearer is silent, "'so he did not open his mouth. "'In his humiliation,' He was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, "Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or somebody else?" Then Philip said uh, sorry, then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. All right. What a reading. This is such a critical part of scripture. I just, I, I, It's one of my personal favorites, but it's also a watershed moment in the book of Acts. This Ethiopian man... Obviously, stood out in the first-century world generally, but especially in first-century, you know, um, Judea. Because, um, well, he was a eunuch. We we're told, which would have meant he had several distinguishing features. An elongated neck was common for eunuchs, a very frail, thin abdomen and torso also elongated, Um, uh, obviously a a high-pitched voice, a telltale tone in their voice, and, uh, you know, other kinds of, of features as well, effeminate features in their face. But he was a man, a male eunuch, who also was from Ethiopia. Ethiopia was the region south of Egypt. All of Africa, south of Egypt, was known as Ethiopia, generally, in the Bible, a huge area and it says to us that this eunuch was responsible for the, what, the treasury of the queen, the Kandake. The king of Ethiopia, it's pretty well established, was a god in his own culture. Like he was revered and worshiped as a god. He was, he was not one to come near the people. So the queen was one who did the day-to-day governing. And this eunuch was an official in her court. Now, That doesn't mean he was all that important. He was still a slave. Eunuchs were very common in the ancient world, and they were a class of slaves. And it's sort of important for us to understand the process that led to a young boy becoming a eunuch. It's unpleasant, so I'm sorry. I'm just going to tell you what this guy had gone through. Archaeologists, historians say that most boys in the ancient world who became eunuchs were from poor families or slave families. Some were orphans who had no parents to stick up for them. Some had been sold by their parents into slavery to become eunuchs. By the time they were eight or nine, that was sort of the prime year or two in which uh, they were to be eunuched. It was the easiest time to eunuch them. And the process of eunuching was as unpleasant as you can possibly imagine. There were no... There was no anesthesia. There was no antiseptic to speak of for boys like this. And so they were put under the knife or um, castrated like farmers castrate animals, you know, by cutting off circulation slowly. And they felt every bit of pain as their bodies were mutilated and cut 25 or so percent, 25 to 28 percent, historians estimate, 25 to 28 percent of eunuchs died within a few months of their operation, let's call it, either by bleeding out or by um, some kind of infection, one-fourth. A man like this would have survived all of that, but you don't outrun those memories, do you? You can't outlived those nightmares. And the nightmare of being a eunuch extended far beyond just losing that part of your body. It followed you throughout your life in the form of social social isolation, being ostracized, being cut off, not just physically, but socially as well. And so I just sort of want us to to empathize as much as possible with this man. The Bible doesn't tell us explicitly what his name was, although we have pretty good evidence to suggest that his name was Simeon. First and second century Christian historians referred to this eunuch as Simeon. And there is a Simeon who is identified later in the book of Acts, but he's not just identified as Simeon, he is identified as Simeon the Black, which in our culture today, I wouldn't recommend giving your, your friends any nicknames you know that speak to their race. Or I think we're past that as a culture now. I want you to know in the Bible times, race wasn't really a thing. Race was a byproduct of the transatlantic slave trade. It was, it was sort of a result, as a concept, was a result of the white supremacist ideals of the transatlantic slave trade, but in the Bible times, it was more about nationality than it was about skin color, and they really took no offense at having a nickname like Simeon, the black one, and the reason that made sense is because he was the only black Christian for a time in the church, in the middle chapters of Acts, and so we're pretty sure this, this eunuch from Ethiopia had a name, and his name was Simeon. Now, it says that he had gone to uh, Jerusalem to. I need to. Sorry, gone to Jerusalem to worship, which would indicate that he went to the temple to worship in Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. This was not uncommon. We don't know if it was because the queen sent him as like an emissary or a diplomat. It was like a political move, or if he was sincerely worshiping Yahweh as a Gentile. God-fearer. Whatever the case, we can be sure that there were all kinds of reasons why this man did not belong with the Christians. Let's count them. He was black, and none of the other Christians were. He was from Ethiopia, and all the other Christians were from Jerusalem, Galilee, Judea, Samaria... He was not a Jew. He was a Gentile, and all the other Christians were Jews at this point in time. And he was a eunuch. And if you know your Old Testament, and I know you all do, Deuteronomy especially, everybody got Deuteronomy memorized? Deuteronomy 23, verse 1 says that any man whose genitals or testicles have been crushed or cut off does not belong in the community of God. Why God would issue such a law, I'm not sure. On first glance, it's easy to say, well, this is just God being mean to guys who already have a pretty tough road to hoe. But I think it's because God chose to reject the pagan practice of emasculating men, mutilating bodies, eunuching slaves. I think it was God's edict that his people not be like surrounding peoples. So, there were all kinds of reasons why this eunuch had no business among uh, the Christians and in the church. Now, Philip, uh, who initially might not have belonged because he was not from Jerusalem and Galilee, he was from Samaria and Judea and beyond, he was the part of the diaspora, Philip might have had an added. Openness to someone who's on the outside looking in. The angel sent Philip to go to the chariot where this eunuch was reading the scroll of Isaiah. Philip heard, as a Jewish man, he heard familiar words from the prophet coming from the mouth of this eunuch in his tell, telltale, sort of high-pitched voice. And he asked the question, "Do you know what you're reading?" Now, I just want to pause here and ask you, can you imagine? What the words he was reading might have meant to him in his particular place in life. Has it ever happened to you? Maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. I know it's happened to me several times. Has it ever happened to you when you're going through something specific and God gives you sort of supernaturally sort of leads you to a word from the Bible that speaks specifically to what you're going through? You're like, even the whole flip through the Bible game that we played as kids, right? Sometimes that works and you're like, wow, how did God know that this is the word I needed to hear? I hear it from people all the time about the passages we preach from. And some Sundays you're like, I needed that. You're like you were talking straight at me. And I was like, I don't know you at all sometimes. You know, it's like, I'm glad you feel that way. It wasn't me. It was something else happening. Imagine how this eunuch felt as he read those words from the prophet Isaiah. What specifically did the prophet say that might have stood out to a eunuch like this. Imagine words like these. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he didn't open his mouth. Can you picture him eight years old? before a man holding a blade, terrified and silent. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, Isaiah said, for his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch Simeon must have felt like Isaiah was talking to him about his own journey, about his own scars, his own past, his own curse, his own isolation. I mean, who can speak of his descendants? You don't think that resonates with a eunuch? For his life was cut off. You don't think that resonates with a eunuch? There's a lot going on in this eunuch's heart as he's reading this, but he still has no idea that this prophecy that's speaking straight to his heart has already been fulfilled in Jesus. And so he says, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? And so Philip takes a seat next to him, breaking or at least pushing to the limit all sorts of Old Testament laws about coming into close contact with the unwashed Gentiles. He takes a seat next to this Man, this Simeon, and he explains everything to him from the prophet Isaiah all the way through the events of Passion Week and the resurrection. This man, Simeon, stopped the chariot and, and spotting some water nearby, he said to Philip, look, there's some water What stands in the way of my being baptized? I don't think it was a rhetorical question. I don't think he was just, you know, wondering. I think he was serious. I think he wanted an answer. And in fairness to Philip, Philip, as the official of the church in this instance, could have responded in any sort of way that would not have resulted in the eunuchs being baptized. And the leaders of the church probably would have said that's fine. Because all they knew was a church populated by fellow Jews. People that looked like Jews, worshipped like Jews, acted like Jews, read the Bible like Jews. And here we have one saying, what is to prevent me from being baptized? Philip could have said, well, everything. Everything. your, Your body, your scars, your past, your nationality your skin color, your religious identity, your sexual identity. Lots of things he could have said. Or he could have gone the more like cowardly pastor route and been like, I got to pray on this, brother. I'm going to get right back to you, but I'm going I'm to have to pray on this for a while. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. And I'm so grateful for your interest in baptism today. If you could just fill out this card and... Uh, Here's the offering envelope while I'm at it. I appreciate your gifts, and we'll, we'll be getting back to you as soon as we pray on this. Or, you know, i will start a committee or something, and we'll get back to you as soon as the committee decides a year or two from now. We'll get back to you. You know, it's not what he says. None of that. In fact, if you read the story closely, you might have noticed something about Philip. You know, he's pretty talkative going up to this point. But as soon as, as, soon as the Ethiopian man, Simeon, says, what stands in the way of my being baptized today Philip doesn't say another word. The whole story. He says nothing. Why? Actions speak louder than words, I guess. The truth is, I think he said nothing because there was nothing that could stand in the way of that man being baptized right then. And so the two of them climbed out of that chariot together, worlds apart, one Jew and one Gentile, one olive-skinned man and one dark-skinned man, one man presumably with a, a relatively sort of normative um, family life and, and, and you know, uh, descendant kids, all that stuff, and, and one man who would never know what that's like, one man whose body had been mutilated beyond repair. They went down worlds apart into that water, and by the grace of Jesus Christ, they emerged from those waters, bound by his blood, brothers, forever. What the world tried to separate, what religion itself tried to separate, Jesus brought together. By God's grace, we'll get to meet Simeon one day in heaven, and Philip too. This is the power of Jesus Christ. What you really have to see to understand what a watershed moment this is, pun intended, but it's true. Baptism was everything for the first Christians. It was the only rite of initiation to belonging in the church. And so by baptizing this one, this man, this Simeon, Philip risked breaking all kinds of rules and norms and traditions. But Philip knew Jesus. Philip knew what Jesus came to do, and Philip heard the voice of God directing him, and he baptized Simeon without hesitation. It is assumed and widely, I think, safely believed that this African man, Simeon, this eunuch who no one wanted, this slave who was a nobody in the eyes of the world, This man that that Philip baptized became the first African Christian and the first African evangelist. Christian leaders at the end of the first century were writing about how Simeon took the gospel to the continent of Africa. And God took one broken, cut-off man who wondered his whole life if he could ever really belong, not only made him belong, but made him an apostle to a continent, And today, there are more African Christians than there are people in the United States. 730-something million Christians in Africa today. By 2050, that number will be 750 million Christians. By I'm sorry, that's by 2025. By 2025, 750 million Christians. By 2050, get this, 1.3 billion Christians projected in the continent of Africa, Y'all, all All of those lives, billions of human lives can be traced back to this one man singing in a high-pitched voice in his chariot on the way home, the prophets of Isaiah, the words of the prophet about a man who was cut off with no descendants, no hope, no future, a man like him. That's what the power of Jesus can do. That's the power of the gospel. Our Savior died a convict, wrongfully accused, but a convict nonetheless. Our Savior died cut off and bleeding. Our Savior Jesus was abandoned by those who should have stepped up to defend him. Some of his closest friends were those who had no other friends. Our Savior Jesus appointed to be the most prolific evangelist in the Roman world, the very man, Saul or Paul, who was persecuting and killing all the Christians just hours before Jesus called him to become an apostle. It's absurd what Jesus can do with sinners like me and you. It's absurd what he did with the first African Christian too, Simeon the Ethiopian eunuch, who wasn't a man of great distinction, who was a man that no one wanted, no one but Jesus. But by the time he realized how much Jesus wanted him, there was no turning back. Once Philip told Simeon about Jesus, everything changed. That's the difference that he makes. Now, maybe upon hearing this story, You identify more with Philip, and you know that there are people in your life God has been calling you to take a seat next to. But because you can't imagine those people ever belonging in a church, you've hesitated because they seem so far from God. Get over it. Take a seat. And tell whoever the Lord leads you to about the life-altering message of Jesus Christ. More importantly, there might be people here today who identify more with Simeon the one who was cut off and far from God and far from God's community. And if that's you today and you've been wondering whether anybody could ever want you, much less God could ever want you, whether there could ever be a place for you in the the church or among the people of God, I hope this story from Acts 8 answers that question definitively for you. It is absolutely true, technically, objectively, that no sinner truly belongs with a holy God like ours. But by the grace of Jesus Christ, every single sinner can belong with God, no matter what you or the world or anyone else has ever said about you. By the grace of Jesus, you too can belong with him. At the end of this message, we'll have communion, and I'm going to be available during communion over here by this little bowl of water. If there's anybody here who wants to remember your baptism, I'll put a little water on your hand, and we'll remember your baptism and give God thanks for this time of renewal and recommittal. But if there is anyone here who wants to make that decision for the first time to follow Jesus, I pray you'll come as well. Pastor Dylan's in the back, um, and he's going to be available for anybody that wants to just have someone to pray with. As people come to have communion, you want to go say a prayer with Pastor Dylan? Where are you going to be, Pastor Dylan? You're pointing to the ceiling. How's that going to happen? Back there? Okay. All right. Pastor Dylan's in the back. Thanks, Pastor Dylan. I'm way over time. Let, let, let's pray together. Lord, um, we thank you for who you are and what you came to do in Jesus Christ, for what we celebrate at uh, Christmas time, um, the incarnation, the source of our hope. Lord, forgive us for limiting the reach of your grace with our dogma and our religion at times, Lord, and help us to be absolutely wrecked and humbled by this story we've read today. All things are possible by your grace, Lord. Everyone can belong, can be reached. No one has lived or sinned their way outside of your grace, and so help us be reminded of that today. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.